Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis from Elsevier, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the pandemic and beyond. Hi, everybody. I'm Michael Carice, and today on Raise the Line, we're going to focus our attention on the fascinating intersection of innovation in life sciences and oncology. As our guides, I'm delighted to welcome two guests. Mark Cummings is president and CEO of Life Science Washington. That's a nonprofit trade association serving the life sciences industry in the state of Washington. And also with us is Dr. Tina Albertson. She's the chief medical officer and head of development at Lyle Immunopharma. That's a biotech company focused on delivering better therapeutic options for patients with solid tumors. Thanks to you both very much for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you. So we always start on the show getting some professional background. We have an audience of med students and early career professionals. They're always curious to find out how people ended up where they do. So Mark, why don't we start with you? What first got you interested in the tech space and then life sciences? Yeah, so I've spent my whole life sort of in technology, not necessarily just life sciences. Spent the first half of my career in Washington, D.C., working in the software and then also in clean tech industries, then spent the last half of my career here in Washington State, you know, advocating on behalf of the industry and, and focused specifically in life sciences. But always sort of that nexus between innovation, policy, and, and industry. And what about you, Dr. Albertson? What drew you to medicine and particularly pediatric oncology? Yeah, no, thank you. I started my academic career in molecular biology and really got interested in you know, what goes wrong in a cell to become a cancer cell. So my first interest in, in cancer became through the biology route. And as I went through my undergraduate education, decided medicine would be a good fit for me and went on to medical school. And as I, I explored the different medical fields, oncology continued to be of interest for me, both from the scientific standpoint but in particular for pediatric oncology, you know, the personal side of it, the family unit that, that you got to interact with and help support. And as I went through my career and training, I ended up back in Washington at the Fred Hutch Cancer Center, where both the science side of it and the medicine side of it were front and center. And I really learned that I, I enjoyed both aspects of that. I actually, after my training in clinical oncology, went back and got my PhD in cancer biology as well. And as I started my academic career and my clinical career, realized that I could actually benefit more patients through industry and, and the development of drugs for large populations of patients rather than the individual contribution of helping a patient in the clinic one-on-one. -on -one. And so for me, it was a great intersection between the science and the medicine, leaving academic clinical medicine and going into industry where a whole team of people are working towards getting drugs tested and approved with the FDA so that hundreds and thousands and sometimes tens of thousands of patients can benefit from those trials and, and new drugs. Yeah, that's a different dimension of impact for sure. Mark, why don't you tell us a little bit about Washington's life science industry for those who might not be familiar with it. You have quite a reputation out there for that. Yeah. So Washington State has a, a long history in life sciences going back 
really to the 70s. We've always had a real strong med school in University of Washington. In those early years, a lot of the spinouts had, had been in the medical device space. So we had you know leaders in ultrasound, in defibrillators. There was actually a time when I think 60 Minutes did a show and referred to Seattle as the best place in, in America to have a heart attack because we had, <laughs> we had just taken the defibrillators and, and put them under ambulances for the first time. So they were portable, right? Fast forward, you know, 30, 40 years, and you've really become this biotech hub that, you know, for, for many years had a real strong background on the research side. But in the recent decade or so, we've really added the commercialization component of that. New companies like Lyle and others that have have grown dramatically. And, and all that is built on a really strong research base. I think one of the things that's unique about the ecosystem here is a real strong mix of nonprofit research institutes. So what you know, Fred Hutch Cancer Center, Gates Foundation, Allen Institute, Fred Hutch, Benaroya Research Institute, and others that really provide this mix of of both incredible research that has both global reach and then also really, you know, the underpinning for the research that has, has gone into the companies here. Um, I'm sure Tina will talk a little bit about that, particularly in the oncology space. And then, yeah, I think, you know, one of the things that's interesting here is that we we are sort of this sort of kind of really kind of advanced in an innovation cluster. So we tend to go after really hard problems here, which is why you saw, you know, for example, the first FDA approved drug in the world for immunotherapy was developed here in Seattle in, in 2010, which served as much of the foundation again for many of the things I think that Tina will talk about. So with that, let me maybe turn over to Tina to talk a little bit about, sort of about the, the immunotherapy space. Yeah. And, and how Lyle fits into that picture that Mark just painted. Yeah, and it really starts with our U University of Washington and Fred Hutch institutions that really form the base of both the science and medicine that underpin immunotherapy. As Mark mentioned, Provenge was one of the first cellular therapies on the market. But the Fred Hutch has been working, they were pioneers in bone marrow transplant, which is really kind of the, the primary first cell therapy that, that went into patients and folks there have been working on genetically engineered and non-genetically engineered cell therapies for decades. And a couple companies have come out directly from the Fred Hutch and not just in cell therapy, but in a lot of innovative cancer and other industries as well. And so it really comes from an institution and a city that's re really well prepared for innovation, not just from a science standpoint and the basic science coming out of those institutions, but also, and I think we'll talk about this later, the technology of Seattle and, and the tech side of our community as well. And so what first came out of the Hutch was Juno Therapeutics, which was then bought by Celgene and BMS. And they were one of the first three companies to make CAR T cells, which is a genetically engineered cell therapy for B-cell malignancies. This is thing like leukemia lymphoma, but they couldn't get it to work in solid tumors. So solid tumors tend to have a few more immunosuppressive elements that, that make it so these therapeutics don't work as well. And so Lyle was founded to try to overcome some of those barriers in solid tumor microenvironment that turn these immune cells off. And so we're committed to making cell therapy work to make those cells resistant to uh, what we call T-cell exhaustion and, and resistant to these mechanisms that shut down the immune system in solid tumor patients to try to get the same benefit for solid tumor patients that we've seen 
from immunotherapy and cell therapy in hematologic malignancies. And how is it going? You know, we're in the clinic. Well, our science is strong. Uh, as I mentioned, we have founders from the Hutch, but we also have founders from the NIH and from Stanford University. So we have amazing science and we're putting it in the clinic and ask me in a year or two and we'll be able to tell you. But, you know, our, our mission is to make things better for these patients and, and we're all hoping we can do that. So you both mentioned the, the sort of tech hub side of the Washington story. Mark, maybe you can get a little more specific for us about how that impacts the life sciences industry and pick up on some of what Tina was talking about. Yeah, well, I mean, this has obviously been a trend that, you know, over the past four or five, eight years is, has been a, a big deal in terms of sort of the convergence of sort of biotech and traditional technology, big data, that kind of thing. And obviously here, home of Microsoft, home of Amazon, and 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 literally hundreds of other, you know, tech companies that either spun off or are part of that ecosystem really makes this state in this region, you know, a leader globally in terms of having that skill set when it comes to big data and cloud computing. And it's kind of interesting because, you know, we had this conversation five, six years ago and everybody saw this coming. But when you said, okay, what are the projects happening? You know, they're only a handful, <laughs> you know, fast forward to today and we've got, you know, a wide range of companies that, you know, are either founded on or their technology is driven by, you know, either AI machine learning or, or access to big cloud data sets and that kind of thing. And they range the gamut from a blood testing company that uses AI enhanced tools to give you a better outcome to a company like Adaptive Biotechnology that is effectively partnered with Microsoft to basically map the human immune system and then using that to develop new, new both new therapeutics as well as, as diagnostics. So it's really an exciting time, you know, here to have those two two areas coming together. And, and we'll see, I think also in, on the digital health side, you know, we've certain, certainly seen during the pandemic, you know, the rise of sort of telehealth. So there's a whole category of companies there as well that we see emerging that are taking advantage of that. I'll let Tina may talk a bit more kind of in the immunotherapy space, how they're utilizing those tools. Over to you, Tina. <laughs> yes. You know, I think there's two aspects of the technology sector that have helped particularly cell therapy, but I think drug development in general in Seattle. And the first is big data. And Mark mentioned that, you know, computing power. Uh, and it started, you know, with the large data sets, you know, for, for sequencing the genome, as you mentioned. But when you think about a cell and you're making a genetically engineered cell product for every patient you treat, each product's different. And each product has hundreds of different characteristics that we track and we keep keep track of and try to figure out which aspects of those cells matter and don't matter. And so we have data sets that are enormous compared to a small molecule in a vial off the shelf, right? And so what we have found is just from data management, data analysis, we need the, the power of, of this technology to just analyze our data and deconvolute what, what matters for cell therapy and immunotherapy for the patient. Additionally, cellular therapies are logistically complicated. You take the cells from the patient at the site of care, you send them on a plane, a commercial flight to, in our case, Seattle, you have to do that within a very short period of time so that you can start processing the cells, genetically engineer them, 
culture them, expand them, freeze them back down and send them back to the patient for when they're ready to be treated. All of that takes logistics power. We, we have, you know, we track flights, we track weather, we track, you know, things that can go wrong in getting the cells to and from a patient. Not only that, but as the cells are growing, if a machine doesn't, isn't working right, we don't want that product to be ruined by an electrical shutdown or a, a, a malfunction of a machine. And so we, we use the power of technology to track and monitor, but also the logistics. We have Amazon web services, both for data, but also for their logistics expertise. How can we scale this kind of medical therapy where it's, it's requiring, you know, different steps that aren't simply medical. They're, as I mentioned, flights and other types of technology that are needed. And so we're partnering with those kind of companies to make these things seamless. How can we make it easier for the patient and for the, the clinic to do these things? Yeah. Now that is something we've done 350 shows and nobody has ever talked about that aspect of it. I mean, there's always more to it once you start getting deeper into it and more opportunities, I think, for different sorts of jobs that people don't even know exist, which, Mark, turning to you, I mean, talk about the workforce piece of this. Two things. One, what are some of the newer positions, occupations, professions, whatever, that are emerging from all of this that you're talking about? And secondly, I would think you guys have a real deep bench there, it's, or, you know, you've got a pool of people from which to draw because of all of the educational institutions and Microsoft and everything else you're talking about. Yeah, no, it's, it's interesting times. And I think, you know, what's interesting about life sciences is the data and competing power certainly allows you to ground truth more questions and, and you know, be able to kind of narrow the funnel. But at the end of the day, you know, you still have to have science behind that. <laughs> Right. So it can, it can lead you sort of to answers and, and, and insights. But at the end of the day, you still need to understand what the mechanism is that's that's driving, you know, the change that you're looking for. And so it's it's a, it's bringing those together. And so we, we see that with many of our companies where, you know, the number of data scientists on staff has grown dramatically in some companies, you know, as many as probably half the company, which you wouldn't think of. You know, I think I always say a lot of folks think, oh, well, I can't work in the industry unless, you know, I'm an old gray haired with a, you know, a lab coat. And the reality is that, you you know, the makeup of the companies has changed dramatically in the last few years to, you know, as you said, I mean, both adding data science, but then also as the companies grow, you know, and evolve from research companies into manufacturing, right? You have skill sets that range from folks that are coming straight out of, of high school and work in manufacturing operations through folks working in, you know, entry-level science through folks that are, you know, PhDs and postdocs with degrees and backgrounds like, like Tina's. So there's a real diversity of, of jobs available and, and then I think, you know, the, the challenge here is, again, you know, we see, putting on the data science side, you, you need that core understanding and skill set, but you've got to be able to then apply that, right, in, in, a, in a different environment than, let's say, gaming or, you know, other software development. You know, we always say, like, there, we, I have yet to find anybody that wants to sign up for that, you know, first, you know, beta test of a heart transplant, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> And so, you know, the, the mentality within the industry is a bit different. So it's the same skill sets, 
but you, you know, applying them in, in an environment of, you know, much longer research cycles, regulated environment where, you know, you, you just simply can't make mistakes with human lives. But also at the same time, we see a lot of folks that have maybe grown up in traditional tech and, you know, they've, they've been in a couple of companies and they really love the idea of going and working in a company that really impacts patients' lives as opposed to just developing code and, and games and that kind of thing. And so, you know, depends on what your background is, but it, you need sort of a mix of skill sets. We're seeing more and more folks, you know, want to jump in, particularly on the kind of the digital health side. And it, and it's always, it's competition, right? Because it's like, if you're an early stage clinical company or an early stage company, you know, it, it's tough to pay the same amount as an Amazon or a Microsoft for those those, you know, in-demand, you know, software engineers. But most of the folks that make the switch, you know, really enjoy the the, the challenge and, you know, the output of that work and, and the impact it has on, on patients. One of the uh, favorite parts of this show for us is getting advice from the guests. Again, uh, as a reminder, a lot of our audience are med students, other health profession students, early career professionals. So let me ask you each in turn, starting with you, Dr. Albertson, you know, what, what advice would you give to someone, maybe a, an earlier version of yourself, if that's an easier way to think about it, in an educational program, looking to their career in life sciences and biotech and cancer innovation research, what, what would you tell them? I think for someone just starting out in medicine or science that's interested in, in helping patients or, and particularly oncology, which is, is my obviously interest. I think you need to be open-minded and curious about what's out there. When when you start in your education, mostly what you're focusing on and what you're exposed to is academics, but that's not the only career path. We need we need practicing physicians, we need basic scientists, and those people are involved in things like what I do. However, there's also people with PhDs and MDs that are on the business side of biotech. They're like me, where they are running clinical trials and managing groups of, of people who are getting drugs tested and approved with the FDA. Those each are different jobs that if you have the science background or the medical background, could be of interest to them. And so my my main recommendation is to explore some of these different paths that may be better suited or, or just may be different for different times of your life. Clinical practice is great for some people. It may not be a perfect fit for all. And academics is the same way. It's, it takes a, a specific kind of person to love the academic world. And, and some people are better suited for a more uh, industry-based career. And there's a lot out there if you look. Well, yeah, it is one of the nice things about being in the health professions is the incredible variety of places you can find yourself. So, Mark Cummings, how would, how would you answer that question about advice to... Uh younger version of yourself. Yeah, well, I would echo it with Tina said. I mean, I think the real key is sort of being curious in those early years. I think, you know, I think about it when so many students, you know, go to college or university and they're probably in freshman biology thinking that, you know, they're pre-med, but only, you know, only a fraction of folks end up, you know, going on to, to get to get their doctor, right? And so there's there's so many alternate career paths that I think students aren't aware of, um, you know, that are open to them. And so that's one of the things is, you know, 
in those early years, reach out, you know, talk to folks that are working in sort of, you know, non-traditional, that it's not just a nurse or a doctor, but someone that is working in the industry, that is running a trial, that is, you know, working in some of those fields. And it's, you know, as Tina said, I mean, it's, it's not just the academic and, and the research component. I mean, there's certainly that which is available to everybody, but there's the entire business side, right? I mean, there's, you know, any good biotech, <laughs> you've got to raise money, you've got regulatory affairs, You've got manufacturing operations. So there's a real diversity of jobs that are available to folks. So I think folks don't always think about that initially when they think about going into healthcare is the is the diversity of jobs that are available. And so, you know, reach out, explore. We're doing we're doing a lot of that work with some of our colleges in the in the state here, trying to add sort of a survey course so they get exposure to those different fields. And then, you know, can go out, not necessarily, you know, take a job, but do a, a summer internship or just get some lab experience. So again, you can kind of you know, you, you see what's available beyond sort of academic training, you know, at a at a R01 kind of university. Great advice. And another favorite question of ours in the last minute or two we have here, we are a teaching company, as folks may know. We love to fill knowledge gaps. And I want to ask you if there's a topic of particular interest to you. Could be what we've been talking about. Could be something completely different where there's a real gap or a myth or whatever that you would say to Osmosis. You guys should make a video about that. What would that be, Dr. Albertson? You know, for me, I think there's a huge educational gap in the understanding of what a clinical trial is, both from what it takes to get a drug from the very first patient ever treated to approval, but also what it what it means for a patient. What what does it actually entail? What kind of benefit can the patient have? Can the field have in the data and learnings from that patient and from that trial? Like why are clinical trials important? You know, in, one of the reasons I went into pediatric oncology is almost every child with cancer goes on a clinical trial. And the, the advances that came from that rigor is amazing. Over 90% of kids are cured of cancer. And that's not true with adults. Adults don't go on trials. And part of it is fear. They don't understand what they're signing up for and what the, the value is to the world, to the medical community by offering up their ability to participate in, in a trial. So that's what I would recommend. Yeah, that's a great topic. What about you, Mark? I think for me, and this may be, you know, because I spent a lot of my time sort of in the in the public policy space, is is just helping educate people on on the time and cost and effort that it takes to bring a new therapy, you know, to market to a place where it actually can have an impact on patient. I think, you know, right now, you know, we we always hear folks that they they want to lower costs and they want access to you know a twenty five dollar copay. We you can't get a cancer therapy for a twenty five dollar copay at, at at the you know corner drugstore, right? I mean, particularly in this market here, you know, our companies are working on just like Tina. I mean, some of the absolutely most advanced therapeutics in the world, and and you know those usually take you know five to ten years of work in the academic environment before you spend another you know two to five years you know on a partnering path. To, you know, going into then moving into the clinic and, and, you know, moving through trials. And so, you know, in many cases, I mean, that's a, that's a 10 or 15 year journey, you know, in, in the case when you've got really great science, it's been proven to begin with. And so when I talk to folks, you know, there's this knee jerk reaction to sort of, we want things to be cheaper. And the reality is once you walk people through sort of what that process looks like, you know, it's not like tech where you get a few folks in a garage, you know, write some code and you've got a, a product out in 18 months or 24 months, right? Or 24 hours. It's, if it's folks, a 24 hours, right? <laughs> you know, we've got folks that 
spend you know 10 years on the research side before you even move it into product development. And, and once you sort of internalize and think about that timeline and process, the different institutions involved and the different collaborations it takes to do that, you know, people begin to have an appreciation of, you know, how how much time, effort, and cost it takes to to really bring a breakthrough therapy like a like a new cancer therapy for solid tumors to market. And then they their perspective is a little bit different than on sort of, you know. Right, right. Well, that's a great perspective. And really appreciate you sharing uh, all this wisdom with us. We've been talking to Mark Cummings, President and CEO of Life Science Washington, and Dr. Tina Albertson, Chief Medical Officer and Head of Development at Lyle Immunopharma. Thank you both so much for being with us today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. I'm Michael Carice, and we want to thank you for checking out today's show. Remember to do your part to raise the line and strengthen the healthcare system. We're all in this together. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our episodes at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast. Mm-hmm.